Welcome to this week's episode of CBT Talks. Jake, today we are going to discuss the Exodus and the law era. Mm -hmm. As God establishes the nation of Israel, he has told them beforehand he's going to do this, and now he accomplishes what he said. Jake, the story of the Bible works, so CBT Talks. Well, as we continue our walk through the the big story of the Bible, the the meta narrative of Scripture, you know, we've broken up into fourteen distinct eras, and, and really those eras just help you again put a timeline on the Bible, just help organize the your messy closet of of Bible knowledge as as, as it's been put before. And so now we're in the Exodus and the Law era, and this is an era where I think things get a little lopsided. Uh, a lot of people focus a whole lot on one single portion of this era, and that is the story of Moses, plagues of Egypt. And then they skip the rest of the era, the majority of it, and just go like straight to Jesus sometimes. <laughs> and so they, they skip. So uh, what we want to do as we go over this era is really break it up into kind of three main sections. And these are kind of the sections that as you're reading through scripture, you can kind of see those uh, distinctions and in, in what God seems to focus on uh, when he's teaching us. And the first kind of major section we're talking about is the story of Moses and the plagues of Egypt and the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, because that's important and that's in there. And of course, we're going to talk about it. But we also want to talk about the second major section, which is the Passover. The Passover is one of the most important um I'll, I'll say most important things that someone needs to understand theologically in order to piece the story of Jesus together. If you want to know uh, who Jesus is, you have to know the story of the Passover. And the second or the last big major distinction uh, section we're going to have is we're going to cover the law. This is the part of the Bible where a lot of people want to skim over and be like, oh, I'm not reading that. Uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, no. Like, no, but it's important and we're going to tell uh, explain why it's so important as we go on. But first major section, Moses and the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Um, here's just some background information that when you start reading the book of Exodus, when you enter this era, you should be reminded of. First of all, none of this caught God by surprise. Absolutely none of it. Way back in the patriarch era, so I guess not that way back, just in the previous era. We just started the Bible. We're only on era three. But, but way back, God speaks future things, and he tells Abram that his descendants would be uh, captives in a foreign land for uh, 400 years. And then they would be uh, set free. They would leave that land in great riches and wealth. And that is God speaking future things, and we're going to see this story unfold. So we have to understand the Israelites didn't accidentally like get captured and imprisoned as slaves in Egypt. It wasn't like this unforeseen thing that God's like, oh no, I had this plan, but now it's messing up, so I got to try to do something to fix it. You see God knowing what's going to happen, and he's working in the background to, to set up these future things. You also see this occur in the person of Moses. So you see it like big picture what's happening to all the Israelites. You also see it uh, kind of little picture in the actual life of Moses. You think about what kind of person would be needed to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt? And you're like, well, we would need someone who is an Israelite. We'd also need someone uh, who has connections uh, with the Egyptians, with Pharaoh's palace, who speaks the language, who's able to go uh, and speak as a representative. We'll also need someone uh, who has been well-educated. If he's going to lead this Israelite nation, like he has to be educated. He, I mean... He, he can't be an idiot. Like, that's the truth. You got like, to be able to read and write. Now, that's something that, that we don't think about because everyone nowadays can read and write. But no, that's a special skill this leader would need to be able to do. And so uh, when you especially go through the, the birth and deliverance uh, of Moses as a baby, you see God really supernaturally intervening and placing him where he's saved from being killed as an infant, right? He's rescued by one of Pharaoh's daughters and adopted uh, into Pharaoh's household to be raised and educated. And you see God, you know, really working in the background of all these things uh, to put the correct person in the right place at the right time so that everything that he said to Abram, you know, hundreds of years ago is going to come to pass. So 
that's kind of that background for most in deliverance. We just want to make sure everyone knows right off the bat, this wasn't unexpected. It wasn't unplanned. God said it would happen, and then it did happen, and everyone acted surprised. And I'm just picturing God up in heaven like, why is everyone so surprised? This is exactly what I said, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and not everybody was surprised. You, you, have, you have glimpses of evidence that the story of God was passed on from generation Mm -hmm. to generation. So you have two primary glimpses into that fact. You have the the midwives who Mm -hmm. feared God rather than fearing Pharaoh. Pharaoh. That means someone in their family passed on this promise from God. The last thing that Joseph said to his brothers, God will visit you. Mm -hmm. And and he's referring to Genesis 15 when God told Abram, hey, I'm going to visit the people. They're going to come out with great riches. Yep. And and so this story is passed on. The other glimpse you see is Moses's parents. You don't see it right there in the text in Exodus, mm-hmm. but the commentary we have in Hebrews is that Moses's parents hid him from Pharaoh's minions yeah. by faith. Yep. And the only way they can do that by faith is if they understand this 400-year clock that has been started. And they're looking around and they're thinking, hmm, it's been 400 years. Mm -hmm. And by faith, they refuse to submit to the tyranny of their day. They refuse to live in fear and they instead trust God. So you have Moses and and he grows up in Pharaoh's palace and and Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 that he he is mighty in words and deeds. He he learns and is is greatly educated in the Mm -hmm. Egyptian system. As as he gets to the age of 40, he is beginning to put pieces together, Mm -hmm. connecting dots. Moses actually believes at this point he's going to be the deliverer for the people. And so he goes out, he sees one of one of his Hebrew brothers being, you know, beat on by an Egyptian taskmaster yeah. and Moses kills the Egyptian thinking, "Hey, I'm I'm going to be the deliverer." Yeah. I mean, he, you know, what well, what else could be the outcome of this? Yeah, and now I do want to point something out because, you know, we don't want to fall into uh that trap that sometimes we get in, we explain the Bible and any major Bible character uh, where people just assume, hey, they were always perfectly good Disney heroes that never made any mistakes or never committed any sin. So when we say like Moses had this inkling, like, I think I'm going to be the deliverer and he sees that He goes out, he goes out and singing, I yeah. can show you the world. That's a different Disney movie. <laughs> but... You know, there was there was this movie called The Prince of Egypt that was made years ago. For the record, I enjoy the movie. I think it's a good movie. Oh, that's movie. the best movie yeah. ever made. Let's just but, stop. Let's stop talking about the Exodus in Law era. And let's, <laughs> let's just talk about our childhood memories of how amazing. Here's, here's the problem with that movie and of so many church plays. Don't ruin that movie story. for me. No. So we have this weird thing where we like to paint the picture of Moses murdering the Egyptian as like this Egyptian was beating this Hebrew slave and Moses was just trying to stop it and then like he tripped and knocked him down and then some scaffolding fell and like the Egyptian <laughs> accidentally died and Moses is like, oh no, I murdered like someone. Like, no, it's like, well, it's a man, so it was an accident you didn't mean to. That's not the story that we get in scripture. We see uh, we see Moses witness this Egyptian beat this Hebrew, and he decided, I'm going to murder this Egyptian. He didn't go in and intervene right there. He waited until no one else was around. He found this Egyptian. He killed him, and then he hid the body. This is a planned murder. Premeditated. Premeditated murder. Yep. And so then afterwards, of course, what happens after you've murdered someone, and he finds out that Everyone knows that he's committed this murder. He's like, well, they are going to want to kill me because I'm a wanted man for murder. I have to flee out of Egypt. And not only that, but the you know the the next conversation he has with his own people yep. is they say to him, "Who made you ruler over us?" Yep. And and so you know Moses is he's in a crisis, yep. a, a crisis of faith, a crisis of identity, mm-hmm. and now he flees for his life and he ends up in Midian in a yep. in a in a place of of idol worship and marries this daughter from the chief ruler yep. of that town that yeah, and, city and when he's in Midian and this is another thing we get wrong with movies and plays you know we always have Moses be like this really young man throughout this whole story um so he's around 40 right 
when he murders this Egyptian, Felice Midian, uh, f another 40 years pass. He's now 80 years old in Midian. He has gone through this long faith journey, just like uh, the patriarchs did, just like so far throughout all Scripture, we see people go on these faith journeys and God teaches them over decades. So now at 80, um, God finally speaks to Moses and tells him to be the deliverer of the Israelite people. And so, you know, you just have this idea that I, I just want to say, it's not that Moses was born and from the age of 20, he was this person, perfect, awesome guy. It was like, no, he was 80 when God finally spoke to him. He had to learn what to do, what not to. He had to learn to grow in the faith, to trust in God. Yeah, and he had to go, he had to go through a crisis uh, period. And, and really, you see that most explicitly, I believe, in the fact that he does not circumcise his son. Mm -hmm. And you could, you could make some argument about that, that maybe Zipporah was, was the biggest part of that. You know, when she finally circumcises her son, she throws the foreskin, you know, at mm -hmm. Moses' feet and says, now. Yeah, um, you become you know, a bridegroom of blood. Of blood, me. right. And so I think I think what what we see is this man who grew up in privilege, very educated, starts putting pieces together. He, he he then goes through a crisis of faith, and now God has to get his attention because mm -hmm. he went like don't don't lose don't don't miss this. He went from being a a a person who grows up in Pharaoh's household mm -hmm. to now being a shepherd yep. of someone else's flock. And so, you know, he goes from very high to very low. And when God appears to him in a burning bush, man, this guy has been beaten down. He has a very low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. He has very little confidence that God yeah. is going to do what he thought God was going to do mm -hmm. in the very beginning. And now he's figuring out, wait a second, you, you want to do this now? Yeah. And he sits there and argues with God back and forth. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing picture of God's patience with us as God teaches us to believe him and to, yep. and to walk by faith. But God calls him to, to go back to Egypt. God has a, a special role for Moses. He is going to be the deliverer. He's mm -hmm. going to be the steward of God's word. Yep. And, and God commands him to go back. Mm -hmm. so, and, and when he gets back, you know, that's, where we get, that's where we get the plagues. And, and after the plagues, you have them fleeing away from Egypt. You have God uh, leading them by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Uh, and then you have God parting the Red Sea. And we don't have time to go into like every one of those things because we want to make sure we hit on the Passover. We want to make sure that we talk about the law. But one, two things I just want to point out right away. Uh, number one, don't try to explain these clearly supernatural events by some kind of like natural disaster. I've heard so many people say, well, do you think it was like a volcano? And then that led to this, which led to this, which led to this. And like, Absolutely. If, if, if you just, if Purely you, God. Yeah. If you read scripture, it's very clear that God is doing unexplained supernatural things, period. Right. And well, you were going to say two things, so I don't oh, want to yes. interrupt you. Uh, and, and the second thing that I want to say is, um, we're actually given in scripture like the reason for God doing these things. He says like he wants to make his name mighty and well known. And one of the reasons for that, uh, just to kind of foreshadow what we're going to get later on in the conquest era, uh, which the next era is, we're actually going to have a, a prostitute by the name of Rahab in the city of Jericho who has heard about Yahweh, who's heard about the great and mighty hand that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And that is what allows her, that's what uh, gives her the faith to to trust in God, to repent. Her and her household are saved. They join into the Israelite family. She be She's actually an ancestor of Jesus. She's woven into that family of, of the seed of promise. And so, once again, this isn't a bunch of separate stories. This is God saying, I'm going to deliver my people through a mighty hand in a supernatural way so that no one can be mistaken that I am the true God and that like no other God's rival. And it's so infuriating to me and frustrating to me when, when thousands of years later we're talking about these stories and we're trying to explain them in a way of like, well, it wasn't the Red Sea, maybe it was the Reed Sea, so it was just mud, and maybe it was a volcano, and that's what caused the darkness. It was just clouds in the sky. It was a, just an eclipse. And you're sitting there and like you're trying to explain 
something that God did supernaturally, even though God specifically said, I'm doing these supernatural things to make my name great and known. And so anyway, that's Well, and just a couple a of things, just a couple of things that we, we have to remember about these plagues. First of all, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And he says to Pharaoh, you have mistreated my firstborn son. And mm-hmm. if you do not repent of this and obey me now, I am going to take your firstborn son. Yep. And so what we have to realize is that that God is setting up a picture here. Mm-hmm. And he's doing two things with this picture. One, he is moving toward the Passover. God mm-hmm. wants to get to the Passover. And the second thing that he's doing is he's giving us a picture of his wrath. How in the world can we fully wrap our brains around the, the fact that one day God is going to throw people into hell mm-hmm. if we don't get to see this this display of God's fury? Mm-hmm. And so when you read the book of Revelation, you can often come back to these 10 plagues in Exodus and say, wow, here's... Here's a very similar picture of what God has done in the past. Let's multiply what God did in Egypt times 300 billion, Mm -hmm. and now we're going to get what he's going to do in the book of Revelation in the future. But understand that that God is moving toward the Passover, and that's what we want to dig into next. Today's episode is brought to you by ChronologicalBibleTeaching.com, your one-stop shop for attaining Bible literacy, understanding of the 14 eras, and continuing on your Bible literacy journey. That's right. If you want to grow in your Bible literacy, ChronologicalBibleTeaching.com is a a, a never-ending resource of commentary and tools that will help you on your discipleship journey. You know, the Passover is, you said earlier, one of those crucial points in Scripture. If we're going to understand God's work of redemption, if we're going to understand who Jesus is in that redemption story, we have to understand the Passover. Mm -hmm. And so just as we make connections about what God is doing in this grand meta-narrative of Scripture, God has already made a promise to Eve. He's confirmed that promise that Mm -hmm. there's going to be one who comes, basically who removes the results of sin forever. He's going to be one who sheds his innocent blood on behalf of the guilty. He's confirmed that promise Mm -hmm. to Abraham, and now uh, he he is... acting in the completion of the fulfillment of all of those promises Mm -hmm. in this very clear, the clearest picture up to this point of the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty. Mm -hmm. And so God acts in judgment and in salvation and in redemption through this Passover feast. And it's something we've seen him do before in the flood. He acted in judgment and in redemption. Mm -hmm. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, he acted in judgment and in redemption. Now he is going to judge Egypt and all of its gods and all of its wickedness. And he is going to provide a a very real redemption and a picture of that future promise Mm -hmm. that he's going to fulfill in the Passover. That's right. And so as we're telling the story of like the plagues of Egypt, the deliverance, understand we don't have the plagues and then the Passover is some separate thing. Like the, the final plague, the death of the firstborn, is where you have this establishment of this Passover feast uh, that we're going to see replicated throughout all of Scripture and, and, and callbacks and references and God expanding it to explain what he was doing. But in this Passover feast, like getting back into the actual timeline the story, You've had all these plagues. The final plagues come the death of the firstborn. And God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn male uh, in the entire land, both Israelite and Egyptian. But there is a way uh, for the firstborn male to not be killed. Uh, All a family has to do is partake in this Passover feast. And it's really simple instructions for this Passover feast. Uh, You have to kill uh, this Passover lamb. It has to be without blemish. Uh, you have to paint its blood on your doorpost. Um, and basically what happens is that the the angel of death is going to go over the land. And if it comes to a house with the blood on the doorpost, it's going to pass over them. You know, God, God will say, 
death has already come to this house, so I'm not going to bring more death to that house. The shedding of the blood of the innocent, the innocent lamb, has taken the place or covered uh, the guilty, which is the family. So every household, both Egyptian and Hebrew, that partook of this feast, like death did not enter that household again. Every uh, household, whether Egyptian or Israelite, that did not partake of this feast, the firstborn son was killed. And there's some peculiar things in this feast that sometimes we overlook, but we see that these themes are expanded throughout Scripture. One of the things is, um, you know, we actually have a Passover feast nowadays that we celebrate. It's the, the Lord's Supper or Communion. You know, we, we have the little bit of, of grape juice or or wine if you're Catholic or some other denominations. And, and then we have some kind of cracker. And you might have noticed that cracker tastes a little bit weird usually. And you might have wondered, like, how come we don't just use saltines or Ritz crackers? Ritz crackers are delicious. How come we don't go to Walmart and buy Goldfish. some Ritz crackers? Goldfish, yeah. Like, why don't we why don't we use that? And the reason why is because the, the cracker that we use is supposed to be unleavened. Well, why do we have to use unleavened bread in the Passover feast. Why does God tell them to have used unleavened bread in the Passover feast? Well, you know, it's the exact same reason he gave the other kind of odd instruction of the Passover feast. He said, hey, when you kill this lamb, if it's flesh, you just have to roast it on an open fire. Also, you have to eat the meal uh, with your sandals on and your bags packed ready to go. And so what is this picture that God's saying? He's saying, listen, the bread has to be unleavened because you do not have time to make dough and... Uh, spread the leaven and wait for it to rise. And you don't have time to do any kind of fancy cooking or preparing. You just got to put it on open fire. You're not even going to have time to get dressed. You exactly. got to eat this in your traveling clothes. Because you're ready to go. Because, because the angel of death is coming at midnight. God said, I'm coming at midnight. And and when the angel of death comes, understand that judgment comes uh, and salvation is also going to come right then. We kind of have this picture of like everything being like really slow paced or something like yeah judgment came and then you know they were like oh our firstborn sons are dead well let's go back to bed and we'll handle this in the morning like it's and that's not what happens it's this idea that there's this this quickness there's this urgency into judgment comes and salvation is coming same and we get this picture that all scripture you think about uh you know you made the references before you go back to noah and the flood um it's hey the rain's coming um and you're either on the boat or you're not it's not judgment is coming oh i guess now i can maybe decide if i want to get on the boat same thing with sodom and gomorrah god's destroying the cities you have to flee if you turn and look back like lot's wife like you'll be caught in that judgment you get that picture here passover that family has to decide Am I going to partake of this feast? Am I going to trust in the shedding of the blood of the innocent only half guilty? Am I going to believe God? Because I don't have time to do like this halfway thing of maybe we'll do the feast. Yeah, let's we... wait and actually see if it happens. Yeah, yeah. You don't, yeah. And you know, it's the exact same thing when it comes to trusting and believing in Jesus Christ now. You don't have a period of time to wait because we don't know when death is coming. We don't know when judgment is coming. We just know that one day God's wrath is going to be poured out. And on that day, you've either been covered by the blood of the lamb, Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, or you have not. So it's this incredible sense of urgency way back here in the Exodus and the law era where God is saying like, hey, I'm already trying to teach you thousands of years ahead of time that you don't need to wait to put your trust in Jesus. The time is now. There's such a huge amount of urgency. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important to just take a step back and think about what this family, if we're just zeroing in on an individual family who is participating in this Passover feast, mm -hmm. God has spoken future things and they can either believe it or not believe it. Mm -hmm. They can either have faith in God and order their lives around that faith, or they can reject God. Yeah. And so you have this family who is huddled up eating this meat in their traveling clothes, no uh, yeast in the bread, ready. They believe that God is going to do what he said he is going to do. Mm -hmm. And and just think about the, these these minutes, these moments, these mm -hmm. hours. The, the dad, maybe his wife, the kids, maybe the grandfather, mm -hmm. the grandkids, maybe there's some great grandkids, you know, in the house. And and just think about those those moments of waiting mm -hmm. and and eating and believing by faith that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. That even though they are sinners, they have sinned against God, they've been caught up in the 
Egyptian idol worship, Mm -hmm. we find out later that even though they have rejected God in in many different ways, God is going to forgive them just because they are believing his promise to redeem them. And that must have been an amazing just few hours for those families. But the important thing about the Passover that we can't miss before we, we, we continue on is that God told the Israelites in the law that they were to set their calendars by this event. This mm-hmm. was going to be the first thing they did in their calendar year. In the first mm-hmm. month of every year, they were to observe this Passover. They were to remember that mm-hmm. God is the God that redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. And yep. they were to use these these pictures, the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty mm-hmm. and the unleavened bread so that they would remember this picture of redemption. And and through the history of Israel, as, as you move forward in the story, every time the Passover feast, that picture was lost because people refused to obey God and participate in it, God would raise up a servant and revive that picture. This picture of the Passover is very important. And, and just to, to illustrate that, they, the people of Israel never consistently observed the Passover. Yeah. In fact, after Samuel, there's this long period of time where the Passover is just sporadically done and not in a big way. And mm-hmm. then you have Hezekiah and Josiah way into the future mm-hmm. reviving that picture. But here's the significance of it. When God made that promise to Eve, the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty, and we see that in the picture of the Passover, Jesus came mm-hmm. and he died on the Passover. Yes. What God wants every person to understand who lives after Christ, that we can look back on everything that has been written in Scripture for our benefit mm-hmm. so, so that we can understand who God is. He wants us to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of this picture mm-hmm. of the Passover lamb. It is through Jesus's shed blood on the cross that he has redeemed us from our slavery mm-hmm. to sin. And Paul really unpacks that that redemption, that ransom price that had to be paid for our redemption. So when we look at this this Exodus and law era, and you know, don't get caught up in the in the minutia of all the details of all the things that they had to do. Understand as you read those details that God is setting up a, a very clear articulation and picture for future generations mm-hmm. so that when Jesus came, every person of faith would be in the same position that those Israelite and Egyptian families were in on the Passover night, the yep. first Passover night. They could either believe Jesus yep. or reject him. And, you know, saying that Jesus is is the Passover lamb, just, you know, this isn't some fancy thing that, like, you learn in seminary and it's like some hidden secret. No, it's it, it's the way that God chose to describe uh, his son. We see this, I think, most clearly in, in the Last Supper. So if you've ever been to church on Easter, they've talked about this. Jesus, uh, during this feast that they're having right before the, this this Passover is part of this festival. Jesus comes right out and says that he is the, the Lamb of God. Like, this is my flesh. This is my blood. Um, and you're like, why in the world is he is he saying this bread is my flesh? You should eat of it. Well, because he's the Passover lamb. He's like, I'm the lamb who's about to be killed. I That is the picture that God chose to explain how redemption works. And the reason why I want to point that out is because sometimes we think we can just stick to the New Testament and we don't need to bother reading the Old Testament. And and here's the deal. If you want to understand who Jesus is, if you want to understand how salvation works, you don't need to just start in the New Testament because they're going to be referencing and they're going to be explaining things using the Old Testament. You can read just the Gospels and you can get to the Lord's Supper and not understand the significance of the Passover feast. But if you've read through the Old Testament, if you have that timeline, if you have that picture, then it all starts making sense. So if you've ever wondered, like, well, how are people saved like by Jesus dying? The exact same way they're saved in Egypt. The God has never changed throughout time. The, the terms for salvation 
really, if you get down to it, have never really changed either. God is simply explaining it uh, to an nth degree so that when we get to Jesus, we're able to understand what that means. When we say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like that is how God chooses to describe Jesus. So I better know what it means for uh, for God's word to call him a lamb. I got to know the significance yeah. of that. Yeah, and it, it's it's so important to, to understand that the Lord's Supper or the communion that we take, it is the Passover mm-hmm. feast. And and the, the difference is when Jesus would say crazy things like, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh, mm-hmm. and people just flipped out when they heard yeah. it. He's not talking about literally. Yeah. It, it, yeah. What he's saying is, I'm the Passover lamb, just like the the Israelites partake of the Passover feast and they eat the 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 they eat the meat mm-hmm. of the Passover lamb. Um, he's he's saying I am the Passover lamb, yeah. and so the, the 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 cup and the bread are the pictures of that covenant. And he Jesus commanded us to take the Lord's Supper, to mm-hmm. take the Passover feast as often. As we would do it, yeah. so that we would remember mm-hmm. his redemption, remember our redemption out of our slavery to sin. Mm-hmm. All right, so that moves us into the last major section, which is going to be the law. I love the law, Jake. Well, I love the law too, although uh, I will admit, full disclosure, when we get to the section of the law, uh, there's a big problem, uh, especially for first-time readers, and that's this. We've been taught our whole lives that there's all these laws in the Old Testament, and we don't need to worry about them. We don't need to know them. We don't need to understand them. We don't need to read them because it's like, oh, we're past the law now. We got freedom in Jesus. You can just skip over all those books. We don't explicitly say that, but like that's what we teach sometimes, even without knowing it. And so when readers get to the law and they're like, why do I care about these dietary restrictions? What do I care about what day of the week that vessel had to be on? And so if you think that a section of scripture doesn't apply to you, you know what you do? You you end up skipping over it. You end up flipping through it. You end up trying to get to some story that you can relate to. But but I want to point out when we talk about this era being the exodus and the law, the giving of the law, it is a big deal. All right. So coming up next, we're going to talk about a big deal. You know, Joel, one of the great uh, pool of resources that ChronologicalBibleTeaching.com provides is small group material. Uh, So often people think that they need to walk their Bible literacy journey completely alone, but that's not how God ever set it up. Small groups communally reading through the Bible is really the heartbeat of CBT. And so we just want to encourage everyone, head over to ChronologicalBibleTeaching.com, look in the small group resources, and see how you can start a small group and communally go through the Bible together today. Well, you know, Joel, as we start talking about the law, uh, we need to start the very beginning of law. What is the most basic law that was originally given to the Israelites that we see as God starts uh, unveiling all of uh, all of what he says and all of what he commands? And we have the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are things that we've all heard uh, our whole lives over and over. Uh, I, I don't know of any church that doesn't have some kind of poster or display or something that has Ten Commandments. Most courthouses have something with the Ten Commandments. They're so fundamental. But a lot of people think that the Ten Commandments are just like ten random rules or like the first ten rules that God ever gave. And it's like, well, that's not true because there's some things on the Ten Commandments um, that God had instructed them before he gave them in the Ten Commandments. I think the best example is like, thou shalt not murder. Murder was wrong before God spoke in the Ten Commandments. It's not like he said, thou shalt not murder, and everyone's like, I've never heard that before. This is brand new information. Like, no, no. So what God is doing in the Ten Commandments, and, and the way he's unpacking this is, we have to understand that, again, this is a story. And God is trying to explain to us the story of him establishing this new nation of Israel. And so 
Right before God gives the Ten Commandments, you have Moses, who is presiding over all of the people and settling every single dispute, every single complaint. They would come to him, and he would tell them what God feels about or what God thinks they should do or how God says they should resolve that issue. And he's doing this day in and day out. And his father-in-law, Jethro, says, this is not a good idea. You you simply cannot do it. There's so many people. You cannot be the only judge, the only settler of disputes in all of Israel. It can't be that for every single minor thing or major thing that like, well, we got to go talk to Moses about this. Um, and Anyone who like owns a business or, or is in charge and sometimes you feel like, man, everyone comes to me with every little problem, that's how Moses felt for his spear. Like literally every single problem, they would come to him all day, all night, just constantly. And so on the advice of his father-in-law, uh, he decided, you know, I'm going to appoint uh, 50 men of good standing to be judges over Israel, to tell the people what God's laws were, what they should be doing, what they should obey. And so you see God uh, using this uh, because he knew exactly what was going to happen. And God then begins to unveil his law for the nation of Israel. And as we get further into the law, we get such specific instructions that God says like, hey, listen, if your neighbor's ox gores your ox and your ox ends up dead this is what you should do about it like he gets that specific but at the very beginning uh god gives these 10 commandments and these are 10 things that that help establish this legal system 10 principles 10 commandments the the fundamental laws which this whole legal system can be built on and every other law that comes out uh really references and directs to these laws and we know this because it is said in scripture that the summary of the law is in the 10 commandments and we're all said that a summary of all the laws is actually um uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the Ten Commandments. And so you have this like expandedness where if you look at the Ten Commandments, you can build up the entire legal system of Israel. So understand, this is not God giving a random list of rules and regulations. This is God explaining, like, this is how justice works. This is how you have a... This is how you build a country with a legal system that honors the Lord. And you, when you go through the Ten Commandments, that's explained so fully. Um, and not only is it explained, um, you know, with simple commands that we can all agree on, like thou shalt not murder, but we see that expanded out through the rest of, of the rest of the law by saying, we all can agree murder is wrong. This is how you need to handle manslaughter cases. This is how you need to handle assault with a deadly weapon, but they failed and didn't actually end up killing the person. So you have these this fun— is, This is how you handle someone who's had a loved one die and who wants to avenge, avenge that death. Yeah. Here's how you handle that yep. before the trials happened. And, and so God's setting all this up, and here's why it's important, especially uh, in America nowadays. Like, how many times, like, we got trials that, like, make the national news and people are following the cases, and, and people always want to know, like, well, what's the just thing? Um, what's the right thing? Was that self-defense or not? Is that murder or manslaughter? What should we do about this? Like, how do we provide justice? And, and I want you to know, like, God provides all those answers uh, in his word, and that's why, generally speaking, um, all the nations of the world um, have eventually ended up concluding, you know what's the best basis to build our legal system? the Ten Commandments. So even if a nation has you know, largely rejected Christ, you go to their courthouse and sometimes you'll see a thing of the Ten Commandments because they're like, yeah, this is how you build a just legal system. And so I just want to set that up that when we're describing these laws, don't think, oh, these laws don't apply to us. Understand this is God trying to teach us what is right and what's wrong, what is just and what is unjust. How should we live as a society? And let me tell you, as someone growing up in America nowadays, I feel like we need more of that kind of teaching. Absolutely. I, and, and so God gives them civic laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. But, but if, you, if you back up even further, mm -hmm. don't concentrate so much on the trees, but look at the forest. Here's, 
Here's what God's doing. God dwelled with man in the garden, and then sin separated mm-hmm. us. And, and so God made a way to dwell with his image bearers, and, and several things occur until God gets to the place where he says, I'm going to establish a nation, obligate myself to that nation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I'm going to dwell with them, and I'm going to produce the fulfillment of my promise to Eve, the the promise of the seed, the the Messiah through this nation. What God is doing with this law, what we can see is that he is holy. And in order for him to dwell with sinners, Mm -hmm. in order for him to meet above the mercy seat and hear their prayers of repentance in that geographic place, Mm -hmm. all of these things have to be in place. So if you look at all of these laws, whatever category they fall into, it is all necessary for holy God to dwell with man. And so he is accomplishing that purpose in all of these laws. But Jake, it's really interesting as we watch this this new nation being called into covenant Mm -hmm. with God, continually fail Mm -hmm. to keep God's requirement of them over in this covenant. And And it really starts with the golden calf issue. Mm -hmm. While God is giving the law to Moses on the mountain, the people are down already breaking the Ten Commandments and falling into idol worship and having a big party and I've speculated about what was going on in that party. But when Moses saw it, he destroyed the tablets God had given him threw them down out of anger you know and so it it was it it really begins there and you see episode after episode of grumbling against God and when you see that that word grumbling or complaining that's not just a oh man I wish we I wish things were better out here in the in the Mm -hmm. wilderness it is it is describing almost riot-like conditions. The people rising up. It's not just grumble, grumble, grumble. It is riot, like we're going to stone you, Moses and Aaron. And so you have several of those episodes where, where the people really begin to test God to see if he really is who he says he is over and over. And this angers God, and you see God respond to their to their sin in that way mm-hmm. several times. They fall into idol worship. Mm-hmm. But the really big thing that they do, and really almost right out of the gate, as as they just take their first steps in this covenant, in this law, is they get to the banks of the Jordan. Mm-hmm. They are about to go into the promised land they send spies into the land. They come back and say, there's giants in the land and we're going to be like grasshoppers. And, oh, don't worry about this huge cluster of grapes. Like, yeah, yeah, the land is flowing with milk and honey, but there's giants there. Yeah. Well, the people refuse to believe all that God has said. God said, I'm going to send my hornet ahead of you. They're going to be terrified of you. Yeah. You're going to conquer them. Um, they refuse yeah. They refuse to go in the promised land. So God responds to their their wickedness by, mm-hmm. by saying this whole generation is going to pass away. And only, only Caleb and Joshua survive yeah. um, and, and actually get to go into the promised land. But you have this, you have, you have God giving the, the law and, and beginning with the Ten Commandments. And then you get to see in this era the the walking out of mm-hmm. how the people respond to God's law and how they struggle. And you see how God responds to their wickedness mm-hmm. and their refusal to yep. obey the law. And ultimately, God raises up a, a generation of... Uh, a second generation yep. of Israelites. And it is this this second generation that God then calls back into covenant with him to obey this law and allows them to go into the promised land. Well, you know, and that brings up uh, something else that I just want to make sure that, that we clarify, especially for our first time uh, Bible readers. Um, you know, God doesn't expect us to perfectly obey in everything. Uh, because he's God and he knows that we're flawed. 
Um, but there is this concept throughout all of Scripture of this unforgivable sin, uh, the apostasy or grieving the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people are like, well, what, what is that? What, what could it be? I think if you really read the law and the story of this early Israelite nation, that answer becomes very clear. You see, God had set up in all these vessels and all these law, all these ways to make sin offerings, all these ways for people to be seen as forgiven and pure and innocent and sinless before a holy God. Well, ways ways for them to express repentance. Yes. The 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 sacrifice, the blood sacrifices and all of the offerings were were simply ways for them to acknowledge everything that God had done mm-hmm. for them and promised and given them and provided for them, but also for them to express repentance in the way that pleased God. Yeah, and so like prime example of that is you know, the high priest could make a sin offering uh, for the sins of the entire nation, right? But in order to do that, he first has to have a sin offering for himself. Uh, so makes an offering for himself, so now he is, is seen before God, like covered by that blood as sinless. Uh, and then he goes forward and he can make this other sacrifice for all the people of the nation. So God set up this system of like, people are going to constantly be sinning. But that's okay because if they're constantly repenting, I'm going to forgive them of their sin. And that's that system that's set up. But when they get to the banks of the Jordan, all right, well, now it's make it or break it. Because it's not saying like, hey, I want to follow God, but I mess up sometimes. It's a choice of like, are you actually going to obey God? Do you actually want to follow God or not? And so when people are like, hey, what's what's that unforgivable sin? What's it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to uh, to commit apostasy. And, and what we see here is, is God saying, listen, if people want to follow me, right, I'm going to help them on their faith journey. I'm going to teach them to be obedient and they can stumble and stumble and stumble. But if they repent, I'll forgive them. But if you choose flat out to reject God, if you reject the gospel, if you refuse the Holy Spirit, if you decide, no, I'm not following God into the promised land. I want to go back to Egypt. If you reject God, um, then you are guilty before his eyes. And so that's that unforgivable uh, sin. It, if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not going to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Like that's that's really it in a nutshell. And that's what God is trying to teach the Israelite people and teach us through this story way back then. Is It's this idea that God is going to forgive us in our stumbling, but messing up on your faith journey is different than rejecting God and never starting a faith journey in the first place. Yeah, and the writer of Hebrews gives us some commentary on exactly what you just said. And by the way, you just said a lot. But to to really simplify it, 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 basically, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, look at this nation of Israel, this first generation. They were all redeemed out of Egypt, Mm -hmm. right? But as their journey moved on and gets to the banks of the Jordan, it is revealed that even though God brought them out of Egypt, not many of them, except really all of them but two, came out of Egypt not by faith. Mm-hmm. And God requires faith. Yep. And the writer of Hebrews also points out to us that it is impossible to please God without faith. And so the, the 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 greatest application for us is that, you know, we can we can give lip service to God as that first generation of Israelites did when they were coming out of, of Egypt. They even celebrated the Passover together after yeah. the Mount Sinai event, before they kind of moved from Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. In the second year, they, they observed the Passover. So you can give lip service to God. You can even attend church, and you can be a part of that congregation of those who call Jesus Lord and Savior, I should say, who submit to Jesus as yeah. Lord and Savior. But God knows your heart, mm-hmm. and along that journey, um, rejection of Him will be manifest in our mm-hmm. thinking, in our speaking, in our acting. Yep. And we are not to think that just because maybe we're around Christian people, maybe we're a part of some Christian activities, that God is going to accept that as faith and yep. repentance. No, just because you're a member of the Israelite nation 
um, as they're walking through the wilderness does not mean that you're right with the Lord. And just because your name is on a membership role at a local church doesn't necessarily mean that you're right with the Lord. Uh, and so those are just some big picture things that, that we can take from the law. But he also gives uh, in the law instructions for the future. Yes, and I'm glad that you brought that up because just real quickly, as you're walking through, strolling through the law and enjoying it, you come across these really amazing moments. Mm-hmm. There's two, if if I could just briefly describe yeah. them, Jake, there's, there's two amazing moments in the law. There's many amazing moments, and now that I'm saying it, I'm thinking of many more. But we only have time for me to talk about two. But in Deuteronomy 17, God tells the Israelites in, in the law, that you know you're gonna want a king one day, and you're gonna have a king, and and he gives instructions for those kings, and mm-hmm. and they're really incredible instructions. One of those instructions is that the king, when they have a king, is to write a copy of the entire law, mm-hmm. first five books of the Bible, in his own hand, and read it all the days of his yeah. life, so that his heart is not lifted up above his people. And you find out when you get in later into the story in the kingdom era, that none of the kings go back and obey these instructions in Deuteronomy 17 perfectly. Therefore, they get into a lot of trouble. And and it highlights the importance of Bible literacy. The kings had just gone back and done what they were instructed to do. Then God's people would have been spared a lot of headache. The, The other moment that I, I really just want to point out briefly is that in Leviticus 17, you get an interesting moment where God actually explains all of these blood sacrifices that have been happening. And he basically says, you're not allowed to eat blood because I have given the blood to you for atonement. Mm-hmm. There's another, a, a third, I said only, I only had time no, for two. No, right, you're on but the I, but, I, but, but there is a third. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells the people that God is going to raise up a prophet like me one day mm-hmm. and and accept, and, and he, he, he explains to them, this prophet is not going to be like me who's speaking to God and then speaking to you on God's behalf. Mm-hmm. Moses says, God's going to hold you accountable for what this prophet says. And so right there in the law, Deuteronomy 18, what we see is that God is telling the people that God himself is going to be this promised one. The one who was promised to Eve, the one who was promised to Abraham, he is going to be raised up as a prophet like Moses, except it's going to be God himself speaking to the people. Because his words and God's words are to be treated one and the same, because they are. Yeah. One and the same. You know, it's just such an amazing thing of, again, God is speaking future things. So as you're reading through the big story of the Bible, the idea is there's going to be some things early on you're not going to understand, but they're going to get fleshed out later on in Scripture. You have those references, those callbacks. There's also things later on in Scripture that you're not going to understand unless you have that knowledge of what came before. Passover being a good example. And so once again, as we're getting through this, uh, I think it's just such a... Uh, an amazing uh, picture of how God's revealing who he is throughout time, why it's important to read the entirety of Scripture, because just a few of those things that that you might miss out on if you've never read through the Bible. Uh, or maybe you have, but you haven't picked on them before. But, man, maybe it's your it's, maybe it's your fourth read-through, and you come across those things, and for the first time you're like, wait a minute, Moses is talking about Jesus because that's why my sermon just, uh, my pastor just did a sermon series saying Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He's the prophet. Like, so we make all these connections. And, and if you've ever talked to someone and it just seems like they know so much about the Bible and you're like, how did they learn all that? Well, they learned it one day at a time, just consistently reading through scripture, making those connections, understanding more about what God has revealed about himself. And, you know, this kind of brings us to our last kind of final session. Like we're just do again a quick wrap up, a review, talking about what God speaks, what God acts, and what God reveals about Himself.
You know, Joel, I often think that it would be an amazing thing if there was one Bible that was in chronological order that followed the 14 era frameworks, and then it had articles and helpful tools, uh, you know, just to help us understand the big story of the Bible. Yeah, wouldn't it be cool if there was one resource you could buy that could be used for communal faith growth as a church together mm-hmm. reads through the Bible and for small groups and for individual devotional reading time. Wouldn't that be great if that resource existed? Yeah, we would need that resource to be like a one-year chronological study Bible written with the CBT team. Wait a second. It does exist. And you can order yours today. Yeah, and so God speaks in this era, and he calls Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And you see that what God, the counsel that God gives, it stands. He accomplishes mm-hmm. what he, he, he intends and what he speaks. Also, God gives the law, and he dwells among the people. And it's important, we didn't really go over this, but it's important to see as God gives them this law, the whole law is centered around the people observing seven feasts. And so ultimately, they're going to go into the promised land and three times a year, the people are going to have to come to Jerusalem and observe these seven feasts. Mm -hmm. And so those, God set it up in his law that Three times a year, the people would come and remember and have an opportunity to hit the reset button. But he also set up Sabbaths so that they had that reset button every single week. Because the writer of Hebrews says, we drift very easily. And uh, And that the truth. (laughs) But God not only speaks, he acts. Yeah, and God acts throughout throughout this period. Bible history, not only by speaking the law, but we see that God acts by inflicting Egypt with 10 plagues. Sometimes we picture God as like, you know, this granddad in the sky with a long white beard and he just wants to give people gifts. Uh, If you read through the Exodus and law, you realize, no, God is righteous uh, and he does punish sinners. And we see him pour out 10 plagues on Egypt and deliver Israel. So God is active in history. He is constantly and consistently doing things. He's not a far-off God who doesn't care. He's God who's here. He's speaking. He's acting. He also uh, delivers uh, Israel by parting the Red Sea, uh, by leading the people literally with a, a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So what we really see is a picture of God's not God's not uh, being vague and confusing the people of like, we don't know where God wants us to go. He's like, no, I'm literally leading you exactly where I need you to go. And when you get to an obstacle you don't think that you can overcome, like the Red Sea, I'm literally going to part the water and give you the exact path that you need to take. So if you've ever heard like, hey, God is, you know, God's just unclear about what he wants for people. Like, no, he's very clear and he acts in a way to make his intentions known. God wants to be known. So God speaks, God acts. Finally, you know what? God just reveals so much about his character throughout the throughout the story of the Exodus and the law. And the first thing I just want to point out with that is, let me tell you about God. God hears us. He heard the cries of his people in Egypt and he desires to dwell among us. He doesn't want to be just a small part of your life in some far off corner. He wants to be the centerpiece of your life. He wants us to have that communication back and forth. You know, it says over and over in scripture that that Moses talked with God uh, as with a friend. And it says that Moses was like the most humble person, the most humble man who, who ever lived. And there's this picture of like, you know what? Our goal should be to be like Moses one day yeah. to where, man, yeah. we are so close in communion with God. He's, he's like a dear friend to us. We talk to him every day. He communicates with us every day. We are walking side by side. I also want to say, hey, listen, here's the truth about God. He saves his people and he judges the wicked. And those are the two halves uh, of that coin of, of redemption and judgment. And so we don't need to stray off too far to one side. We don't want to say, oh, yeah, God's this uncaring force that just wants to wipe people out. That's not true. We also don't want to say, though, that God just wants to give good gifts and there's no punishment. God cares about justice. 
We see that in the giving law. He cares about what's right and what's wrong, and he doesn't make mistakes. So he saves his people, those who want to walk by faith with him, and he does judge the wicked. And we can have a lot of faith and trust in that. Last thing, I just want to say, you know, God reveals that he desires strongly. Uh, He wants us to know him through his word. There's a reason why uh, the Exodus and the Law era is in the Bible. And it's not for us to breeze over. It's not for us to skip. It's not for us to say this doesn't apply to us. This scripture reveals to us who God is. And he put it there for a reason. God wants us to know him. And he commanded the kings of old. Like if you're going to lead my people, if you're going to be a leader and you want to know who I am, you need to write your own copy of my word. You need to read it day and night because that's how you're going to walk with me. That's how you're going to know who I am. It's no different for us. I'm not saying you got to handwrite your own copy. I am saying if you did, that would be amazing, though. I... Well, and, and, you know, in the law, God reveals about his character. He, he wants uh, perfect justice mm-hmm. to be administered. He also is merciful to those who stumble. He, he cares about those. He defends those who cannot defend themselves. Yeah. And, and so we see that God, once again, he is good. And his word is true. And he wants us to know him through his word. So as we study God's word, as we read the Bible chronologically, and we walk through the 14 eras of scripture, what we find out is the story of the Bible works. So So, CBT CBT talks. Talks. Thanks for checking out this episode of CBT Talks. If you'd like to support us, uh, you can like, comment, subscribe. We have a Facebook channel, a YouTube page, and a main website, chronologicalbibleteaching.com. We're a nonprofit organization, so all those things helps get our reach out to more places. That's right. We're everywhere on the World Wide Web.